morning again. I love that song. There's something about that song. I think it's true for us. It says something about our humanity and about what it means to be in Christ. And I think that's what God has for us this morning, is to understand certain hard to comprehend, beautiful realities if you are in Christ. So when Chris uh, asked me to preach um, a couple weeks ago, I, I just I got an email, and in the subject line it said, Mike, I'm going to be out of town. Do you want to preach July 4th? First thing I thought, freedom, right? Freedom. It's in our DNA. It's in our blood as Americans. We shoot fireworks for freedom. We eat hot dogs for freedom. We, we are free people. It is in our very essence. It is in our DNA. Patrick Henry said, um, give me liberty or give me death, right? I'd rather be free than live in tyranny. The, the, the very core of uh, the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Freedom is in our DNA as Americans. Freedom is in our DNA as Westerners. From William Wallace in Braveheart, to the hot dog eating contest this afternoon, freedom is in our DNA. We love freedom. It invokes something in us as Americans. But too much freedom can be a bad thing, right? I'm, I'm free to, to get out of here, get in my car, and peel out, go 100 miles per hour down the road. Totally free to do that. Well, either I'm going to get in a wreck or somebody's going to pull me over, and my freedom is, is going to get me into some sort of trouble. I am totally free this morning to walk up to Matt Wise and slap him in the face. Totally free. If you don't know Matt Wise, 6'4", 260, way stronger than me, I'm free to do that. But he's going to hit back and he's going to hit harder, right? There's something about freedom that we love, that we strive for, that we pursue, but there's a bit of danger to it, right? Because a zebra in the wild is freer than a zebra in the zoo, but what else is in the wild? Lions. Lions are in the wild. And so we, when we come to a text like we're coming to today in Galatians 5, when we come out of a culture that is full of this ideology of autonomy and a desire for freedom, I think we have to ask ourselves, what should we know about freedom? What have we learned in the last 250 years of America about freedom? We've learned two things. Freedom is a privilege that should be protected and pursued. And freedom creates danger requiring personal responsibility. Freedom is a privilege that should be protected and pursued, and it's a good thing. But freedom creates danger requiring personal responsibility. So when we come to a term like Christian freedom, I think we have to navigate this text very carefully. Because it's really easy to fall into to air on one side or the other. So this morning, we're going to look at what Christian freedom is and what it is not. And we're going to look at how we're called to use that freedom for God's glory and our greatest good. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Galatians 5. 
I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6, and then skipping down to verse 13 to 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Skip down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another. Let me pray. Father, because of our cultural context, we love freedom. Praise you for the gift that it is on each of our lives. God, I pray that as we dive into your word that we would unpack the truths that are so much more glorious than political freedom or relational freedom or socioeconomic freedom. God, would we find Christian freedom to be beautiful, to be a thing that we desire to pursue, to be a thing that we desire to protect. God, at the same time, would we live within the reality that our sinful souls take good things like freedom and turn them into sin. Would you protect our hearts from it? Pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Christ, you are truly free. In Christ, you are truly free. Don't be enslaved to the law. You are free to experience Christ. Don't be enslaved to the law. You are free uh, to experience Christ. So I, I heard a story from John Piper, and I'm, I'm going to take it. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit to, to kind of fit my context uh, in my life. But um, John Piper tells a story, um, and I'm, I'm going to tell it to you. This way. So if you've been to my house, when you walk in the door, first room on the left is a formal living room. That means my house is really old, and that means we don't really use that room anymore, right? So we've turned that room into a playroom for for my kids. And there's wall-to-wall just toys and bins, and everything looks nice and neat. And and often, we we send our boys into the playroom. We say, go into the playroom and, and go play. Now, there's something I know about kids, that when you have a lot of toys, you don't know which toy you want to play with unless you see all the toys, right? So when we say, go in the playroom, they get out every single toy, and then I walk in, and I see one of them playing with a toy over here, and one playing with a toy over here, and it looks like a bomb's gone off. In the playroom. If you, if you have young kids and have been to my house, you've seen the bomb, right? You're like, you've sent your kids into that playroom, and you've seen the bomb go off. Now, let's say that I come home from work one day, and I say, boys, it's time to pick up the playroom. What's the first thing they're going to say to me? One of them, I guarantee, one of them is going to bat their eyes, and they're going to say, Daddy, you going to help me? Daddy, will you help me clean up the playroom? Now, I have one of two choices in that moment. I can say, no, son, I've had a long day. You've got five minutes to clean this mess up, and if you don't get it cleaned up, I'll be back, and you're going to be in trouble. They're going to fuss, and they're going to pout. They'll probably slowly clean up the room. They'll probably be sloppy in the way that they clean it up, but generally, they'll get the work done. But there's another way. I could say, when they ask me, Daddy, will you help me clean it up? 
He said, absolutely. You know what? How about you clean up the baseball cards? I'm going to clean up the blocks. If I get more in than you, then I win. If you get more in than me, then I win. What happens in that moment, they're going to be ecstatic. They're going to work harder. They're going to work faster. We're going to get the job done together. And dare I say, they might even enjoy it to some extent. Well, what's the point? When it comes to cleaning up the messy playroom of our lives, understanding freedom comes down to if we have to do the work ourselves to make God happy and pleased with us, or if the Father comes down off his stone to do the work with us. That's the difference in Christian freedom. That's what it means to understand Christian freedom. So let's look at it in the text. Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So Paul is writing to the church in Galatia to Christians, to believers, who um, have been disrupted in their faith by people called Judaizers who came into the church of Galatia and said, yeah, it's okay if you become a Christian by believing in Christ, but if you want to make God really happy, you know what you should do? You, you should accept circumcision, or you should accept the Jewish Old Testament law. They said you can accept Jesus if you add to it circumcision. If you add to it keeping the law, then God's going to be really, really happy with you. Well, why is that such a big deal? Because when a person becomes a Christian, he is set free of the burden of sin. He is set free of the burden of law by grace alone through faith alone. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may up in some sort of effort to earn his approval. Because any amount of me cleaning myself up, any amount of me making myself better, takes the glory off of Christ and puts it on my ability to make myself right before God, right? If I can do something to earn God's approval, yeah, 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 I'm going to accept Jesus. Yeah, 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 I'm going to get baptized. Yeah, 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 I'm going to do this. But if I add anything to that, I retain some amount of glory that I rob from Christ. Freedom in the past at salvation. Well, what about current freedom? John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christ has set you so free that there is nothing you can do, past, present, or future, to make him love you any less. There's nothing you can do, past, present, or future, to make him love you any more. If you have received Christ, if you are one of the sheep of Christ who hears and understands his voice, then there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. Nothing you can do to make him love you any more. That's Christian freedom. So how do we use this freedom to clean up the messy playroom of our souls? How do we use it? Look with me at verse 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you, or excuse me, let's go back to the, the, the end of verse 1, sorry. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's a couple things that, that that second part of the verse tells me. First, it tells me that freedom cannot be assumed. It must be pursued, right? There is some sort of 
freedom where Christ has set us free, but then we can choose in some form or fashion to either live as free people or we can live, again, enslaved to uh, the, the world, enslaved to the law. Now, now, here's the thing. It's good Southern Baptists who know your Bible. As I was reading this text, I thought about Fletcher. I don't think we struggle with that first principle that I read out. We don't struggle with the fact that you can't clean yourself up to earn God's favor. You know what we struggle with, you and I? We, we struggle with this. Because God has given me favor, I have to clean myself up to pay him back. Because God loved me so much, I have to work to pay him back for the life he has given me in Christ. John Piper calls this a debtor's ethic. This idea that because God has given me so much in salvation, he didn't, he didn't just give me salvation, he forgave my sins. And now from that point forward, I spend the rest of my life becoming a better person, becoming a better Christian, trying harder, working harder in some sort of vain attempt to pay God back. Well, how do we do this? That's found in the, the next part of the text. So Galatians 5, picking up in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So, so how do we do this? As, as good Southern Baptists who have our theology right yet still err in this way that we try to pay Jesus back, how do we do this? We accept circumcision. Now, what Paul's talking about to the, the, the church in Galatia is that there's this teaching that there's salvation by grace through faith, but then God would be really happy if you accepted circumcision. God would be really happy if, if, if you took the law back on yourself. Circumcision started as a sign of God's covenant with Israel, way back with Abraham. He gave them this sign of circumcision as this beautiful sign for this inward reality that God made a promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. It was this beautiful picture of God choosing Abraham and choosing his offspring to fulfill his promises and his purposes. But by the time we get to the church in Galatia, circumcision had become a way that Israel differentiated themselves from the other nations. It became this moral badge of honor, this, this thing that was done to show my moral superiority and your moral uh, failure, your moral inferiority. Accepting circumcision after becoming a Christian was symbolic form of paying God back for the salvation he had freely given by doing certain things that made me morally superior to everyone else. That's what he says when, when he says, do not accept circumcision. That's what he's talking about. Well, how do we do this today? Right? Because there's nothing inherently wrong with circumcision, right? Circumcision was this idea of becoming Jewish or being engrafted into the, the Jewish family. There's nothing in and of itself that is wrong with circumcision. But if we're using something, if we're using anything as some sort of a form to be morally superior to other people or in some way to pay God back or earn additional favor from God, then I would say we fall into this same trap of accepting circumcision that he's talking about in Galatians. So I'm going to give you three ways that I think we struggle with trying to accept circumcision or earn some sort of moral standing with God. The, the three of this, we do this through our convictions, through our causes, and through our disciplines. We do this through our convictions, 
through our causes and through our disciplines. First, convictions. Convictions are this. If, if there is a line drawn in the sand and on the right side is obedience and on the left side is sin, a conviction is taking that line, taking it a couple steps back into obedience, and the thought behind it is, if I don't cross that line, then surely I'll never struggle with disobeying, right? And, and so we do uh, things like this that are very good things. Let's say we have a conviction not to have sex before marriage. First off, that's not a conviction, that's obedience. That, that's the line in the sand that Jesus says, do not be sexually immoral before marriage, right? So a conviction would be, well, if I'm trying to avoid having sex before marriage, then I'm going to make a conviction that we're not going to kiss, right? Because kissing may lead to temptation. Kissing may lead to sin. And that could be, for you and your situation, that could be a good biblical solid conviction but you know what that conviction is it's personal that, that conviction is taking the the law taking the uh, the line of obedience and it's moving a couple steps back saying that if i can stop myself before i go too far then i'll stop myself before sin but here's the thing there's nothing inherently wrong with kissing we, we know that that's not sin and, and so the, the way that we personal convictions and then i take that and impose it on somebody else or I take it and I use that conviction to earn some sort of favor with God. I, I look at somebody else and go, man, look at them kissing it up. Are you kidding me? Who do they think they are? They're so sexually promiscuous. I'm good. I, I, I haven't kissed my girlfriend in three years. Look, look at me in my moral standing. Look at me in, in my law. Look, look at God. Bless my relationship because I'm better than that other person. That's what we do with the law. That's what we do with conviction. So a couple of ways that I, I think that we do this. We hear verses like, raise up a child in the way he should go, and in the end he will not depart from it. And we make personal convictions on parenting that are good, that are biblical, and then we look at other people and we judge them for having different parenting styles than us. Or maybe we don't judge other people, but at least we, we go to God and we think, won't you bless my parenting more than theirs? How else do we do this? I, I think we, we look at politics and we build convictions that are good and biblical and personal on politics. And then we vote according to our conviction. But when we turn and abuse our convictions, we start saying like things like, how could, that be a, how could that person be a Christian and vote Democrat? Or how could that person be a Christian and vote for Trump? I have taken my conviction that is mine, that is biblical, that is personal. I have po imposed it on somebody else, and I have said that they have less moral value. I have superior standing with God because of my political conviction. That's how we abuse convictions. When I make personal convictions a law for others, I rewrite God's word and therefore redefine his character and I use it to put other people down to lift myself up so that I can feel better about my standing with God. That's the issue that the Galatians are facing. That's the issue that we face today. Second, causes. So convictions is first, causes is second. Causes are taking good things that I'm passionate about and called to and condemning other people who aren't as passionate about them as I am. Right? So we, we take uh, uh, any cause. We, we can do this with being pro-life. We can do this with adoption. We can do this with anything. We take a cause and say, I'm passionate about it. I'm called to it. And if you're not passionate about it and you're not called to it, well, then you, 
Are you even a Christian? Are you even pro-life? If you're not volunteering at Choices of the Heart? And so we take these causes and we try to add some sort of superiority, some sort of moral badge of honor that we attach to it, and then we condemn others who don't have it. The third thing is this. It's, it's discipline, spiritual disciplines. I'd say spiritual disciplines can be an attempt to divert God's attention from my sin to my good works. Spiritual disciplines are saying, I know I've got this jacked up part of my soul over here that keeps running back into the sin over and over and over again. But God, don't look at that. Look at how much money I gave last month. Look at how many times I read my Bible last week. Look at how many people I share the gospel with. Look at how many uh, Sunday school classes I'm part of, microgroups that I'm part of. I'm a deacon in my church. God, don't look over there. Look over here. And we try to divert God's attention away from our sin, away from our soul, and onto our uh, morality. Now, here's the thing is convictions, causes, and disciplines are good things. I want every person in here to have convictions to have causes, to have disciplines that, that you're passionate about and that you're pursuing and that you're running to. But when we use those to gain slave ourselves back to the law, we submit again to a yoke of slavery, and there is a severe fallout for us when we do that. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So if you accept circumcision, if you are using your morality, if you are using your obedience to earn favor with God or to judge others, three things are true. Christ is no advantage for you. That's really scary, right? Because when we stand before God without Christ, we stand condemned. And if he's no advantage for me, then then I think we should be pretty fearful. Second, uh, if we accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. What God effectively is saying is, you want the law? Go for it, big boy. But don't just stop at that law. You've got to keep it all. Because when, when we stand before God, either we will stand before God ourselves alone in our own moral standings and moral failures or will stand in Christ with his uh, perfect obedience and his payment for our sins. If you use the law, if you use convictions, causes, or disciplines as a form of paying God back for salvation, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. So, so here's the thing. Here's, here's the principle. At salvation... God, through Christ, declares you righteous. When you become a Christian, when you submit to God, when, when you come forward and you give your life to Christ, to the Lordship of Christ, at that very moment, God says you are forgiven, past, present, and future. You are perfectly righteous before me. And then the rest of your life as a Christian, you grow into that identity. You grow into obedience as a child of God who already existed, who's already been declared that, right? Um, So we start by being declared, and then we grow into it. But then we have an issue. When we sin or when we have a besetting sin in our lives, a reoccurring sin in our lives, our depravity makes us insecure in our relationship with God. 
And we say things like, I can't believe I'm a Christian and still struggling with fill in the blank. I can't believe I'm a deacon and I'm still struggling with fill in the blank. I can't believe I'm a church member still struggling with fill in the blank. I can't believe I'm a pastor and still struggling with fill in the blank. Our sin causes us to be insecure in our relationship with Christ. So what do we do? We run to the law in one way or another to make us feel like we're growing. Well, maybe we really aren't. And so when we can't handle the pressure that this sin is causing in my life, instead of running to Christ, I try to pay him back over here by diverting his attention to my morality. It's kind of like this. If we go back to the playroom, I walk in, I tell my boys, all right, boys, it's time to clean up. They say, yes, sir, absolutely. I say, well, do you want any help? No, we got this. We can clean it up on our own. We'll be fine. And they're going to spend 10 minutes trying frantically to clean the room up to meet some sort of expectation that they suppose that I have as their father. In that moment, I am of no value to them. They've revoked my help. They've said they can do it on their own. And in fact, in that moment, they're obligated to clean the whole playroom. Because you better believe when I come back and I... I will never meet their expectations. Why? Because they are hoping to earn uh, some sort of extended love, some sort of extra love by cleaning the playroom really well. And I'm just going to come back in and say, yeah, you did a good job. Playroom looks good. But whether they clean the playroom or not, it's not changed whether I love them any more or any less. But when they suppose that it causes me to love them more, then they slavishly obey. They slavishly clean the playroom hoping that I'll come back and say, man, you are such a good son. Let me give you a popsicle. Let me give you more. Let me love you more. The issue is that we become insecure in our relationship with Christ. But when we clean the playroom like that, when when my boys forsake my help to clean the playroom by themselves, they've missed an opportunity to be with daddy. They take 10, 15 minutes to, to be on their own to try to earn my approval, pr- approval that I've already given, love that can never change. But by saying, I don't need you to help me clean up this playroom, they've forsaken an opportunity to be with Daddy. They've severed our relationship from one another. By trying to clean up the playroom themselves, they have fallen away from grace because they missed an opportunity to be with Daddy. Your good convictions, causes, and disciplines will not make God love you more. In fact, they can be an assault on his grace because we say, you don't love me enough already. So I need more of your love. I need more approval. I need more acceptance. I need more blessing. And we try to pay God back as if the debt is so small that we could actually pay it back in our lifetime. But that's far more significant than that. But I'll say this, there's, there's a hint in verse 4. So you ask the question, well, how do we do this? How, how do we clean up, how do we go about cleaning up the, the messy playroom of our souls? There's a hint in verse 4. Verse 4 says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So if accepting circumcision means we have fallen away from grace, then biblical sanctification must be a pursuit of that very same grace. 
That, that is what God is inviting us back into. He's inviting us into relationship so that by grace, through faith, we can pursue sanctification. Look at what he says in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, through the Spirit, when we come to Christ, God's Spirit dwells within us, and God's Spirit helps us grow spiritually. He makes cleaning up the playroom of our souls both uh, doable and enjoyable. Look at, look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. When the Holy Spirit enters into us and dwells within us, he gets to work at cleaning up the playroom of our souls, whether we know it or not, and we can join with him in it and, and be with him in his presence, uh, achieving that work, or we can uh, run from it. Either way, through the Spirit, God dwells within us and helps us in our process of sanctification, Christian growth. But there's a second thing. He says, by faith. So through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. When you become a Christian, your righteousness doesn't come all at once. Right? We, we talked about it. Justification, God declares you righteous. And then when you stand before him in glory, you will be perfectly righteous. But there's this huge uh, period in the middle from the time you become a Christian to the time that you stand before God in glory called sanctification. It is what the verse here says is we spend our time waiting for the hope of righteousness. So we are declared righteous. We are declared children of God. And then we live the rest of our lives wandering around in the wilderness of this world while God does the process of sanctification in our lives. You are declared righteous, and one day you will stand before God as perfectly righteous. The Christian life is a life of faith. So through the Spirit, when God's Spirit dwells in us, he, he does the work of sanctification by faith. What does it mean to have faith? What, what are we believing to have faith? Faith that God will fulfill all the promises for your life that he has extended to you in his word. Listen to what he says in Philippians uh, 1.6. <clears throat> don't have them in my notes. Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So, so when we think about what do we need faith in, in, in order to be sanctified, what do we need faith in, in order to be grown in our spiritual life? We need to have faith in promises like Philippians 1, 6 that says, he who began a good work of salvation will complete the work of sanctification. And he'll put you in the presence of God in glory as a glorified, perfect recipient of his grace. The question is not whether or not we'll be sanctified. The question is how will we wait? As we're waiting for this hope of righteousness, one day we'll stand before God perfectly righteous, perfectly cleansed, uh, free from the presence of sin. How will we wait for that day? Will we wait as one under the law? And when we sin, it creates insecurity in ourselves. It says, man, maybe God doesn't love me because I've been a Christian for 20 years and I still struggle with fill in the blank. Maybe God doesn't love me, so, so I, need to, I need to prove to myself. I need to see some fruit in my life. 
I need to see some growth. I need to see some change. Maybe I can pay God back by, by increasing my devotional life or by sharing the gospel with a lost person or by living and obeying in a certain way. Will you live and will you wait as one under the law? If you will, Christ will be of no advantage to you. But there's another choice. We can wait as one under unshakable grace. When we obey, we are fully confident to run into the presence of God, praising him for the strength to overcome our sin. And when we disobey, when we sin, we are fully confident to run into the presence of God, admitting that we are still in process and claiming all of the promises that he's given us in Scripture about our growth and our sanctification. That's what it means to be free. To live in freedom is living within the reality that there's nothing I can do to make God love me less There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. Verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That sums it up. There is nothing that we can do to make God love me more, nothing we can do to make God love me less. Okay, point number two. Don't be enslaved to sin. You're free to love and serve others. Don't be enslaved to sin. You're free to love and serve others. Pick up with me in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another. Don't be enslaved to sin. You are free to love and serve others. He says, you were called to freedom. So he's talking to Christians. He's saying you were called out of slavery and you were called into freedom through the blood of Christ, through his atoning work for us on the cross so that we would be declared righteous, which means that I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't do anything to make God love me less. Now that's dangerous. That's a dangerous thought for someone like me, for someone like you. Because the first thing I think of when I hear freedom is I'm free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, wherever I want. If I can't lose God's salvation, then what's to keep me from going off the deep end? I think we, we, we think that way because we operate under law. We, we operate under this uh, presupposition that we're trying to pay God back. But what Paul calls us to is to stand in our freedom, and it's dangerous in freedom. We could go too far with freedom. But, but he corrects us, gently corrects us uh, in, in the next verse. He says this, from the, for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin. Well, well how could we do that? Well, we could say, well, if I'm free then, and Jesus has forgiven my sins, past, present, and future, then why obey? Right? Why live a good Christian life? Why not just do what I want, whenever I want, however I want? And I say that we struggle with this concept in two ways. I think we abuse Christian freedom. We take freedom too far in two ways as the church. We, we say this, because I'm free, I don't have to grow. Because I'm free, I don't have to grow. If Christ has forgiven my sins, past, present, and future, and there's nothing I can do to be snatched out of his hands, then I can just kind of casually go to church. Two out of four ain't bad. I, I can be a part of a Sunday school class when they meet my needs. And I can get out when they don't. I can 
be in a microgroup as long as they don't ask any questions that are too hard or press too deep into my sin and make me uncomfortable. I have the option to grow if I'm free. That's the first way we abuse it. And the reason we do this is because we make spiritual growth about me. We make it about ourselves. Second, I think we abuse our freedom by saying, I don't have to obey. We're so good at disconnecting the godly life. We are so good at disconnecting and compartmentalizing Christianity with daily life. And that's the, that's the sort of mentality and that's the sort of belief system that could allow me to gossip while at a church function. Right? Like, isn't that twisted and messed up? Like, I'm standing here, I'm worshiping God, and then I go and start talking about everybody that sings bad? Like, there is something twisted in our mind and twisted in our soul when we can compartmentalize and say, I do good stuff for God over here, but he doesn't really have any effect on my life over here. It's that same mentality that allows us to judge a fellow believer who has a different parenting style than us. To uh, come to worship and to go through the motions. It's that same mentality that I am free, nothing can touch me, nothing can separate me, and I abuse that freedom so I can come to church and I can worship in physical, uh, our physical body only, but I don't have to engage with the sermon. I don't have to pray when the pastor's praying. I certainly don't have to sing or lift my hands. I think it's that same abuse of freedom that allows us to live next door to a lost person for a decade and never share Christ with them. Because I'm free. I'm good. Not so concerned about my neighbor. <clears throat> So that's how we abuse freedom. The question really below that is why would we abuse that freedom? Why would we take Christian freedom and use it as an opportunity for the flesh? Why would we take good Christian freedom and use it as an opportunity to sin? I I think we abuse freedom by using it to get as close to sin as we can without sinning, right? So if we, again, go back to the line in the sand, we say God's on one side and sin's on the other side, and I'm free from, from the point of sin all the way to God to run in either direction, I say, man, I'm, I'm free to do this. What, and we ask these questions like, what, what can I do and still be a Christian? What can I do and still be a Sunday school teacher? What can I do and still be a good husband? And, and, and we inch closer and closer and closer to the line of sin, all within the bounds of Christian freedom. When God has called us to use our Christian freedom to run to him as hard as we can and experience him as deeply as we can. Let's go back to the playroom. Let's say I come home, and I tell my boys, all right, boys, time to clean up. They say no. Has that happened to anybody before? Probably not. Y'all are good parents. Parents never, your kids never tell you no. Let's say I come home, and I say, it's time to clean up. They say no. They're absolutely free to say that. They can say no and walk in sons if they reject my command. But the, but the room still has to be cleaned. And as I get down on my hands and knees and start picking up toys, it's only going to be a matter of moments before one of those boys walks back in because they want to know what daddy's doing. They don't want to go into the other room. They're unsatisfied in the other room living by themselves, trying to find things to do. When daddy's home, they want to be with daddy. And so they wander back into the playroom and they say, well, what's daddy doing? That's what I want to be about. That's what I want to give my life to. That's where true happiness is because it's not a matter of what I'm doing. It's who I'm with. Am I with daddy or am I with myself? The room still has to be clean. And that's where our father is. I think it's interesting in in both of these cases. First, we, we talk about people running to the law to avoid 
Jesus. Now we're running to sin to avoid Jesus. In both of these cases, we're doing everything in our power to avoid Jesus because we don't believe that God loves us or loves us enough. So we run to the law or we don't believe that God satisfies us or satisfies us enough. So we run to sin. There's two verses on Christian freedom that I want to, that, that address these false beliefs. First is 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we are with the Father, we become like the Father. We don't have to worry about our sanctification, about doing better things and working harder to earn his favor. When we're with him, we become like him. And second, Psalm 16.11, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can't get fuller than full. In God's presence is fullness of joy. So when I'm in the presence of God, I'm being sanctified and grown to the, to the Christian that he's called me to, do, to be. When I'm in the presence of God, my soul is completely satisfied. It's amazing that we avoid the Father to run to sin, to run to the law. I think it's because we desire the blessing rather than the one who gives the blessing. You're called to freedom, brothers. Are you using your Christian freedom to run to God as hard as you can because you just want to be with Daddy? Second, I'm going to make this real quick so we can get out of here. uh, In picking up in verse 13, so you are called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So first, first way to curb your freedom is don't use it as as an opportunity to sin. Second, but through love. Serve one another. I just want to read what Paul says on this topic in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. Paul uses his freedom, not selfishly, to retreat from people so that he can build himself up, but he uses it selflessly to move towards people so that he can make Christ known. So to the Jews, he becomes like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he becomes like a Gentile. To my liberal neighbor next door, we come with understanding and compassion, and instead of trying to convince them to vote a certain way, I use it as every opportunity that I may share Christ with them. To, to the person who has a different cultural experience than me or that is completely different from my experience, I come listening first so that I might understand them. And when I have understood, I speak the balm of the gospel to the pain of in children in dirty diapers and saying, I'm going to curb my freedom and I'm going to enter into the mess of her life so that I could love and serve her so that she can know Christ more. Maybe it's moving towards a young professional who's stumbling out of the gates with a new job and trying to figure out finances and savings and retirement and, and work. And we curb our freedom to step out as a listening ear and a life full of wisdom to help them walk through those difficult seasons of life. We curb our freedom because that's what the Father did for us. Philippians 2.5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
Jesus has more freedom than you and I could ever have. Our freedom is, is limited to gifting and to opportunity. But Jesus was the very word of God that spoke creation into existence. And Jesus gave up more freedom than you and I ever could. He came off the throne of heaven and onto the cross so that he could get down on the playroom of your souls and help you clean up your life so that he might present a bride perfect in Christ before the throne of glory. So here's the question, I guess, this morning. If Christ has set you free, how are you going to live? Are you going to live as one under the law that tries to pay God back? Is there insecurity in your relationship with God and your identity with God that you say, man, I just gotta, I just gotta clean myself up. I just gotta work a little harder. I gotta do a little better. Or have you overcorrected in such a way that you are running uh, towards freedom so hard that you're saying, man, it, it just really doesn't matter. I can't lose my salvation. So what's the point? Why go to church? Why grow? Why obey? I think the, the answer is this, is, is because Jesus is somewhere in the middle, and we're fully satisfied when we're with Daddy. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, and rose again to give us freedom from sin and to give us freedom from the law. If we've been freed, why would we run back to the law as if it could save us? If we be, have been freed from sin, why would we run back to sin as though it would satisfy us? We've proven time and again that it won't. A couple practical applications. First, use your freedom to pursue Jesus. Take the Be Intentional Month challenge. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to be a part of Sunday school. You don't have to be in a microgroup to make God love you, to earn God's love for you. You just don't. You are completely free to sleep in, to drink coffee, to show up at the 1045 if you want. But there's something about freedom and knowing that the church is where Jesus is. That's where he promised he would be. And so are you going to use your freedom to press in, to engage, to walk back towards biblical habits in your relationship with Christ? Use your freedom to pursue Jesus, not to pursue the law. Second, curb your freedom to love others. Have an intentional, redemptive conversation with someone different than you. This might be a neighbor. It might be someone in a Sunday school class that's different than yours. It might be somebody in a demographic that's different than yours. It might be somebody who's older or somebody who's younger. But have an intentional conversation with somebody who's different than you. Not looking for how do I get out of this uh, relationship, but how do I pour in? How do I invest into this relationship? Use your freedom to pursue Jesus. Curb your freedom. Uh, to love others. We are absolutely free. If you hear nothing else, hear this, that that there's nothing we can do for God to love me any less, nothing we can do for God to love me any more. But there's more freedom to be had. There's more freedom to be lived in the presence of Christ and the grace of our Savior. You are called to freedom. Stand firm in it for God's glory and for our greater good. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this day that we can celebrate the gift that you've given us in Christ. God, I just confess how often I think of something like Christian freedom. I think about the gift you've given me in Christ, and I abuse that grace by running to sin over and over and over again. 
And I so flippantly repent, saying, well, God forgave me once. I'm sure he'll forgive me tomorrow. God, I pray that we would not treat your unending forgiveness that way. Lord, at the same time, we, uh, we run away from you and to your law when we feel that we've been exposed, when we feel that our, our sin has gotten the best of us. God, I pray that you would help us not to uh, submit again to the yoke of slavery of the law. God, you've called us to freedom. You've, you've given us your grace so that we could be known by you in order that we may know you and make you known. God, I pray that we would live in that freedom, that we'd be transformed by that freedom, and that we would take steps this day to live pressing into relationship with you, to, uh, to live for your glory and to curb our freedom to live for others. God, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, maybe for you, you've never experienced that freedom before. I said at the beginning that this is a message. These are the benefits of people who are in Christ, who have not submitted to that lordship. If you have not given your life to Christ, I would invite you to come. You can come up here. I would love to have the opportunity to pray with you. You can come catch me at the, at the end of the service and, and introduce yourself, and, and we can go to my office and we can sit down and talk about your story. But there's freedom to be had that, that says that we don't have to pay God back. And, and I would love to, to be able to walk through what it looks like to, to receive that freedom for the first time. But for most of us, I would say we've come to Christ long ago. And maybe you're living in a season of life where you feel like you have to pay God back. Maybe you're living in a season of life where you're more concerned with your convictions and your causes than obedience to Christ and his glory. I would invite you to come and repent of that. I would invite you to, to come and, and just confess the insecurity that that breeds and ask God to be your all in all. Or maybe you're somebody who has understood Christian freedom and has become a, a grace abuser. We know that we're forgiven, past, present, and future, and so we continue to live for that which doesn't satisfy. Come, stay where you are, but respond to the Father how he's calling you. The sin that you're living for does not satisfy because Jesus isn't in the sin. There's fullness of joy in his presence. Whatever it looks like for you, as we stand and sing, I pray that you would respond to God's call in your life.